The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, I'm always amazed when the Holy Spirit just puts a service together. Of course, Danny, you probably know where I'm at in the text, and maybe you're reading it. Yeah? Wow. Um, I hope you're really ministered to. Those songs really ministered to me, to be able to sing truths like that and to be uh, reassured of who God is and what he's done for us. And he's, he's with us. And nothing changes with him. Everlasting. Uh, we are, <laughs> speaking of everlasting, we're still in the Gospel of John. We will be for quite a while. Um, I love the Gospel of John. We could spend... A lot of time here. So John 16, we're going to focus on verses uh, 16 to 22. John 16, 16 to 22. Jesus continues uh, this farewell, farewell discourse, uh, speaking this to his disciples. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice And no one will take your joy from you. Precious. Let's pray. Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, how awesome it is to read and to consider your word. That we might read the very words of Jesus, the Son, and his loving assurance and care for his own. We pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to us through your word, that he will apply the truth of your word, encouraging, strengthening, strengthening our desire to grow in our love and faithfulness to you. For you are our God, and we worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever put yourself in the shoes of these 
disciples and think, I'd do better. (laughs) I mean, yes, Jesus does sound a bit confusing here, but it's not as if he hasn't been clear all along the way, right? After feeding the 5,000, Jesus explicitly said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Another time, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. They didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And yet again, as they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them. He began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him. And flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Jesus mentioned his burial. Remember when Mary anoints his feet. Uh, in, In the previous two chapters of John. His farewell discourse. He's been telling them he's leaving. That he's going to the Father. And so, again, from our perspective, it seems appropriate to make fun of these dense disciples. That they appear to be anyway. Why don't they get it? Get it? Why? Jesus has been so clear. And yes, we think, okay, the Holy Spirit has not yet come. But really, does it? Does it require spiritual discernment to grasp these plainly spoken words? He wasn't being cryptic. He wasn't speaking in parables. This isn't about them understanding the meaning, right? They're going to understand the significance of his death later on. Too much for them to bear right now, and the Holy Spirit will will help them with that. So why don't they understand simple words, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. When we assume uh, we already know, it can be hard to see anything else. Assumptions are powerful. They can blind us to the obvious, to what's right in front of our faces. Worldviews. Think of worldviews and people that you've talked with, and there's this, they don't, it's like we're not talking the same language sometimes. So, worldviews, expectations of the world around us, they cause us to see everything in light of this. And the disciples had no way of seeing, apparently, no way of seeing a dying Messiah, even though he told them plainly. Their expectations were apparently so set in their worldview that they couldn't comprehend what Jesus was plainly telling them. 
And you're the same way. For example, we've all been affected by 19th century, the 19th century study of psychology. Without making any judgment of its rightness or wrongness, let me just say that you, whether you realize it or not, you are wearing these glasses. You are. Let me ask you a question. Let me test this. Here's the question. Do you find your work satisfying? (laughs) When I ask you this, you're, you're thinking yes or no, or on a scale of yes or no. You understand what I'm asking. You have a category for it, right? You don't cock your head sideways and wonder what on earth I'm talking about when I ask that question. But a couple hundred years ago, people might have wondered what I meant. Carl Truman, in his excellent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, wrote something I found extremely fascinating. He wrote, My grandfather left school at 15 and spent the rest of his working life as a sheet metal worker in a factory in Birmingham, the industrial heart of England. If he had been asked if he found satisfaction in his work, there is a distinct possibility he would not even have understood the question, given that it really reflects the concerns of psychological man's world to which he didn't belong. But if he did understand, he would have probably answered in terms of whether his work gave him the money to put food on his family's table or shoes on his children's feet. If it did so, then yes, he would have affirmed that his job satisfied him. His needs were those of his family, and in enabling him to meet them... His work gave him satisfaction. Carl goes on to, Dr. Truman goes on to write, if, if I am asked the same question, my instinct is to talk about the pleasure that teaching gives me, about the sense of personal fulfillment I feel when a student learns a new idea or becomes excited about some concept as a result of my classes. For my grandfather, job satisfaction was was outwardly directed and unrelated to his psychological state. For members of mine and subsequent generations, the issue of feelings is central. I don't think these disciples were dense or that it required spiritual discernment for them to believe Jesus when he says, they're going to kill me, and in three days afterwards, I'm going to come back to life. No, I think they just had certain messianic assumptions. And because of this, they didn't have a category for Jesus, their Messiah, dying on a cross, or dying, especially in such a way. They assumed an earthly kingdom. And this is why we read about them arguing, who's going to be Jesus' right-hand man? Who's going to have the power? Who's going to... They hang on to Jesus saying that the kingdom of God is now at hand. They see his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration and their concept of victory has nothing to do 
with a shameful, horrific execution on a cross. Now, the reason I point this out is simply to emphasize just how blindsided, how shocked and surprised and devastated they will be. It's not only the horrible and shocking loss of their master and their deeply loved friend, but their world, their expectations and dreams are going to be completely shattered. And so, with that in mind, how much more so will be their joy? Pain and joy are connected. You won't, you won't be underwhelmed when you see Jesus. All of your sufferings, all of your pain, they're meaningful. There's purpose. You won't be underwhelmed. Pain and joy are connected. Your pain will not just be replaced or forgotten. No, it will turn into joy. Oh, Jesus says, I have so many things I want to say to you that I want you to understand, but you can't bear them now. You cannot comprehend. And so, let me just say a little while, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you'll see me. For the disciples, the sorrow is coming. It'll be here in just a little while. And once they're in it, Jesus assures them that it'll only be for just a little while. Don't you hear the tenderness of Jesus? As if they're like his children and he knows they can't understand, they can't comprehend, but he wants to give them something, something to help them in the moment. Now, this doesn't compare, but it reminds me of a parent telling their small child who's miserable in a long road trip, just a little while, honey. (laughs) We're almost there. It'll be over soon. Just a little while. I'll be well. When your kids get a treat and are enjoying some ice cream, you don't need to tell them just a little while. But when they're an hour into a 10-hour road trip saying just a little while can be helpful. And Jesus tells them the truth. Doesn't sugarcoat it. He senses their confusion. And in verse 20, he gives them the reality of what they'll experience. He doesn't tell them it's going to be, you know, first class, lots of room to stretch out, hot fudge Sundays whenever you want. No, he tells them the truth that they will weep and lament. Jesus knows the the injustice to come, the horrors of crucifixion. Think of it. For three years, these disciples have known Jesus to be their master. And the master of every circumstance they've ever faced. 
Think of the confidence that they have in Jesus. All of the threats, the plotting of these religious leaders, and Jesus saw right through them. He knew how to shut them up or how to leave them in utter confusion. They they weren't a threat. But then later that evening, these disciples, they will see him arrested. They will witness the, the shocking injustice of a mock trial with Jesus, not, not answering these false accusations, false charges of blasphemy. They'll see him scourged with whips and beaten by soldiers and mocked before the people. They'll hear the crowd cry out for Barabbas. And they'll hear the crowd cry out, crucify him. They'll witness his torment, hands and feet nailed to a cross. And oh, the confusion if they heard Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In the moment, they didn't understand why Jesus died. But we, we have a different perspective, don't we? We understand that, you know, the, the Jews and the Romans aren't ultimately to blame, but that it's because of me. It's because of you. It's our sins. Jesus suffered and died because of us. It's hard for us to imagine what they felt. Just the thought of him leaving grieved them, let alone the realization of how he would leave them. Clearly, they loved him. Think of how you've grown to love Jesus over the years. How this causes you to long for the day when you'll see him face to face. Yes, uh, he's present with us now. By the Holy Spirit. And yes, we can understand how this is better for us. But one day, all will be well. You'll be well. You'll be like him because you'll see him. So if we long for this, think of how the disciples grieved over the realization that he's gone. He's dead. Our hopes are shattered. We thought he was the one. And Jesus tells them that in the midst of their grief, the world's going to be celebrating, rubbing salt in their wounds, rejoicing at the thought of finally ridding themselves of Jesus. And so Jesus assures them, just a little while. It's not forever. You'll see me. In verse 16, the first, just this first little while, refers to his death. And the second refers to his victorious resurrection, where they would actually see him again. And oh, can you, can you imagine their joy? A level of joy that's linked to the level of their sorrow, a level of joy that 
far exceeds their sorrow? Notice verse 20. Jesus doesn't say that their sorrow will be paid back or compensated with joy or that their sorrow will be replaced by joy, but that their sorrow will turn into joy. The resurrection does not do away with the crucifixion. No, instead it turns the sorrow of the cross into our joy and glory. The cross by itself is just a form of execution. But when it's turned into joy, now it's mentioned all throughout the New Testament in terms of wonder and praise and joy. This instrument of execution, the ugliness of it, and we take for granted, we read in our New Testament and, all, and we sing of it as beautiful and glorious and wonderful. It's ugly. It's horrible. This is what the resurrection does. It doesn't do away with the cross, but gives us a whole new perspective on it. The anguish is not forgotten, but the resurrection gives it meaning. It transforms the despair of the cross into their greatest delight. This is why the church has historically rejoiced in the cross. Even unashamedly boasting in the cross of Christ. We, again, we sing of it. We sing because Jesus' death has redeemed us from our sins. They're paid, they're forever gone, they're forgiven as far as the east is from the west. The cross is good news. The resurrection of Jesus has turned their sorrow and ours into the greatest possible joy. And Jesus explains this with an illustration about, about giving birth. Now, obviously I can't appreciate this firsthand, but I've witnessed it. I've seen the sense of sorrow and suffering as Jennifer labored and gave birth to our daughters and and then I've seen the resulting joy. And it's all connected. And think about it. That women will experience this kind of pain and then want to do it again. This is evidence that the joy of their child overwhelms the pain. And it's all connected. It's a package deal. And the sorrow or suffering is turned into joy. But men, you know, I hear that the closest thing that we can experience is kidney stones. Uh, I've experienced this. And let me just say that it not only is not a good comparison because I've witnessed my children's birth, but the payoff is not nearly as joyful. I mean, I didn't wrap mine up and name it Stone Phelps or something. Uh, I didn't look back on it with, with nostalgic joy. But with a baby, there is lasting joy. We see this kind of joy all over the New Testament. As Paul is determined to preach nothing but Jesus and him crucified. 
as he boasts in the cross of Christ, as Peter exults in the precious blood of Christ, as John quotes the worship song of heaven, worthy are you for you were slain. So instead of the cross being put away, undone or canceled out by the resurrection, we see the the grief transformed into everlasting, joyful salvation. So what does this say to us? It says that we have reason for real joy. It says that whatever sorrow you have, Jesus says, just a little while, then you'll see. So, I want to consider how the resurrection has turned the cross into joy. First is vindication. By the resurrection, God the Father has turned the injustice of the cross, its false verdict concerning Jesus, into a public and historic vindication. By his resurrection, Jesus is pronounced, he is shown, he is proved as not only not guilty, not guilty of any crime, but he is declared to be righteous. Jesus alone has perfectly kept God's law. And as the wages of sin is death, so the wages of righteousness is life. Life that could not be kept in the grave. Life that bursts forth and shows that any other judgment is false. Vindication is expressed in Peter's sermon in Acts, where he said, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead to be, to, to this we are witnesses. The resurrection reversed the false verdict of men and showed that Jesus is the holy and righteous one, the author of life. Think of the joy these disciples must have experienced falling at the feet of the risen Christ. Worshiping him. Think of the joy that will be ours when Jesus returns in glory. The name that the world spits out as a common curse word, he will come in glory in every tongue. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Second, redemption. The resurrection proves that God the Father accepts the atoning death of Christ for our redemption. The grief of our sin and the realization that Jesus went through indescribable suffering and death because of us, this is turned into joy when the resurrected Christ 
declares that our guilt has been removed. That we're forgiven. God's justice is satisfied. And then, amazingly, we realize as we read Hebrews 12 that Jesus has no regret. Not only no regret, it was for joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. For joy, Jesus died for you. For joy, Jesus died for you, knowing the joy he would have as his as his blood was shed to redeem his people from the curse and the power of sin. Charles Spurgeon writes, Heartily do we lament our sin, but we do not lament, lament that Christ has put it away, nor lament the death by which he put it away. Rather, do our hearts rejoice in all his atoning agonies and glory at every mention of that death by which he has reconciled us unto God. It is a joy to think that he has taken on himself our personal sin and carried it right away. A third reason that sorrow will turn into joy is is the restoration of Christ's personal presence. They grieved his death and his absence and their shattered expectations and all of this was turned into joy when they when they saw with their own eyes touched with their own hands the risen lord as we look at this section of scripture i want to point out three main interpretations concerning jesus's words a little while and you will see me no longer and again a little while and you will see me Uh, Some believe this is a reference to Jesus ascending to heaven and then being seen in a real spiritual sense through the Spirit's coming at Pentecost. They point out that this fits with the previous emphasis on the Holy Spirit and that through Jesus, that, uh, excuse me, that though Jesus is physically absent because of the Spirit's coming at Pentecost, Jesus is now spiritually present with us. We see him. Because of the Spirit, we see Jesus. Others believe this refers to the church age. That though a long time for us in God's economy is just a little while. And then the Lord will return in glory and we will be overcome with joy as we see him face to face, and all things are made right. And then, really, the most obvious interpretation, one that I've been doing here, considers the immediate context and what these 11 disciples are going to experience tomorrow, in just a little while. And that only three days later, just a little while, they're going to see Jesus risen. So I believe this is what Jesus had in mind, especially in light of the world rejoicing in the midst of their sorrow. But like all passages of Scripture, even though there's only one correct interpretation, there may be hundreds of applications. Hundreds of applications to us. So even if it's not what Jesus meant 
It's still true that the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was was another joyful scene of Jesus. And think of the relevance to us as we go to God's Word and see Jesus. Isn't it our prayer that we will experience what the two disciples on the Emmaus Road experienced, saying, did not our hearts burn within us? Might this be our prayer as we open the Scriptures, that by the Holy Spirit we would see Jesus, that our hearts would burn with a passion for His glory. And we weren't there to see the the resurrection, but we can't imagine what it's going to be like to see Him in our lifetime, coming again, maybe in our lifetime, maybe hundreds of years from now, we don't know. But if He were to come in our lifetime, we can imagine how glorious and that he's going to make all things right. We can understand pain and suffering and the desire for everything to be made right. We can know that when he comes, everything's going to be turned into joy. So yes, it feels like a, a really long road trip right now. But in God's economy, it's just a little while. It's just a little while until we see him. A fourth reason for joy has to do with the conversions they saw also. Just quickly consider the world rejoicing as they are mourning at the death of Jesus. They're rejoicing as the disciples grieve. But now, in light of the resurrection, the disciples rejoice to see many of these same people who conspired to murder Jesus coming to a saving faith in him. Think of the mercy of our Lord. What were his words? Father, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Even the chief persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus, is confronted by the risen Lord and won to the faith. So there's joy in these conversions. And fifth, a fifth reason for joy is in our remedy. Let's face it, we are... We're weak. We minister in the midst of frustration and apparent failure. And at times we don't live up to what we believe. We wonder if any of our efforts really make a difference. And the remedy for our disappointments, the remedy for our failure, is the resurrection power of Christ that transforms all of it into joy. This is what Paul was getting at when he wrote, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are weak and frail vessels who possess the greatest treasure of all. And God intends our weakness so that the result will not be confused with us, but it will obviously be him. The resurrection is the remedy. It turns our greatest sorrows into joy. A joy that Jesus says is so great that nothing, no one, can take it from us. 
Yes, we experience sorrow. Now, yes, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Paul understood this as he prayed for his thorn to be removed. And Jesus answered, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responded to this weakness with joy, saying, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There is something much bigger, don't you think? Something so much bigger than our health that what we assume might be the best plan. We may think, Lord, you know, we could be more effective for you if if you remove this thorn, maybe. If we had some more money, if we had a building, if everyone thought the same way as I do. (laughs) No. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised to humble, to prevent human boasting in the presence of God. The remedy didn't come in military might, in an earthly kingdom overtaking Rome. No, it came through shame, through what is despised and rejected. And a little while after, it led to the remedy of the resurrection. And because of this, we're birthed into new life and a joy that looks to the resurrection as well. You and I, we look to the resurrection as well. So whatever you're going through, know that God is sovereign. He sees. He sees you. He knows your sorrow. He he knows your weakness. He knows your disappointments. The disciples saw Jesus again a little while after their greatest sorrow. And the remedy, the remedy is found in the resurrection. It changed everything for them and for us. So whatever you're going through, look to the risen Lord. Love him. Obey him. Get to know him in his word. This transforming joy was not only for these 11 disciples. It's also meant for you. Keep looking to Jesus. The joy that you crave, the only joy that can, ever, that can never be taken from you, is found only in him. Let's pray. Father, there are many concerns and sorrows and sufferings among us. And I pray that the words of Jesus will bring comfort. Comfort, as we hear him say, it's just a little while longer. All will be well. Lord, give us a growing hunger to see Jesus, to see him in your word, to know his presence through the Holy Spirit, to long for his coming when we We'll see him face to face. Thank you for the certain hope that is ours because of the resurrection. Knowing that all of our pains will turn into joy. Until then, Lord, strengthen our faith. Give us joy in knowing and loving and following Jesus, we pray.
in his name. Amen.